Will you please turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we want everybody to be able to follow along. So these gentlemen are coming to the front to make their way back. So you can get their attention and let them know if you need a Bible. They'll get one to you. And that Bible is marked at 1 Peter. And you can have that as well. We want everybody to own a copy of the Scriptures. So consider that our gift to you. When one reads the Bible, she is at once confronted with both an issue and with a problem. An issue that is addressed by God and a problem that's solved by God. The issue arises in the Bible's very first verse. Most of you are familiar with it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, why is that an issue? Well, it's because, if you think about it, you now have two distinct realms. You have the spiritual realm of God, and with creation, you now have the natural world of creation, the heavens and the earth. And the question is, how are these two realms going to relate to one another? How will God, in the upper story, so to speak, how will He relate to creatures in the lower story? And God addresses the issue by making one of His creatures in a very unique way. And so that same chapter, that opening chapter of the Bible tells us that God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And so God makes mankind in His image. And among other things, this means that man has the ability to relate to God. So that although we're in this lower story and God's in the upper story, although we have these two realms, humans are aware of God and are able to know God and to have a relationship with Him. By making man in the image of God, God shows that although the spiritual and the physical realms are different, they are designed to be connected to one another. And so the issue that arises from the fact of creation is addressed by God in making one of His creatures in His image and thus making the connection. But soon a problem develops. And the problem stems from the fact that man is made in God's image, which means that man, like God, has the ability to make choices. And humanity, who were made to relate to God as most of us know, chose to disconnect from Him. And that choice to disconnect from God had profound consequences, including the fact that all who are now born come into the world disconnected from God, separated from God. And that's why David said of himself, but really of all humanity, in Psalm number 51, Surely I was sinful at birth, Sinful from the very time that my mother conceived me. And the Bible teaches that humanity is spiritually debilitated by sin. So that our ability to choose now, though we still have it in every other realm, it's restricted now in the moral realm. And so the Bible says in the second part of your Bible, in the New Testament, there is no one righteous. 
Not even one. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who does good. Not even one. And then that very same chapter goes on to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we are born separated from God. So that although we will often do the right thing, hear this now, we never do it for the purpose for which we were created, namely the glory of God. Now God could just leave it at that. He could leave it with all mankind separated from Him. But the Bible's story is that God determined to create a way for mankind to be born with a new nature and to be recreated in His image. But in order for that to happen, it requires that God take the initiative since our ability to choose has been restricted by sin. If we're going to see our need for being transformed, then it must be shown to us by God because we don't seek Him. He must seek us. Remember what the Bible says. There is no one righteous, not even one. No one who seeks God, no one who does good. Now, though God is not obligated to rescue anyone, none of us at all, from our chosen state of being disconnected from Him, He graciously takes the initiative to rebirth and to re-image some of those who, apart from His choice, would not and could not come to Him. Those are the people who are the original recipients of the letter that we call 1 Peter, the letter that we're going to study beginning today and over the next several months. The very first verse says that this letter, if you take a look, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, this letter is written to God's elect. These are people that He has graciously chosen, elected for rebirth and re-imaging. No one naturally wants this. And no one, none of us, is entitled to it. And as the very word elect implies, not everyone then is rebirthed and re-imaged. So God solves the problem of humanity failing to fulfill its purpose of connecting with and glorifying God by doing this, by creating a new humanity called out of humanity. And that means this. There are two kinds of people. And that creates a problem for those of us that God rebirths and re-images. Because now we are in a world where there's two kinds of people. We have been reconnected to God, but we live among people disconnected from God. And that is why after the word elect in verse 1, those who have been called out of the world and to God are also called exiles. Our separation from God is solved by God, but we now live as exiles among people. We were separated from God, and now that we've been reunited with God, we are separated from people. We live here, but our home is elsewhere. And the Bible says that. It says that straight up in Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so the Bible speaks in language that's addressed to 
us and to, to them. Now, I know we don't like to speak that way. And, of course, we need to be very careful when speaking that way. As if us, as if we are somehow superior to others. Of course, that's not the case in the least. But the Bible does, in fact, by the force of its message, speak to us and them, to the saved and the unsaved, of believer and unbeliever, of light and darkness, of truth and error. And that's because we live here, but our home is elsewhere. And because of that, although we live here, we live by a different set of rules. And that's why Peter, in his five chapters now, is going to address these elect exiles. And he's going to tell us how to live among people who are still disconnected from God. Notice chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 11. He says, dear friends, I urge you, now notice this, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, do you all see the us and them language there? I mean, there's us and how we are called to live as foreigners and exiles, and that's in contrast to the way everybody else lives. And it's our hope that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they will see the difference in the way we live and that God might use that to cause a desire that they do not naturally have to be implanted in them in order to bring glory to God. And so there's this us-them language. Foreigners who live here, but our home is, is elsewhere. Because we're living with people who are disconnected from God, and, and people disconnected from God can make it very hard from those who have been reconnected to God. Often, they don't like us. And they did not like these early Christians to whom this letter of First Peter was written. And if we're honest, too often, we don't like them. I mean, let's just be straight about it. Too often, we don't like them because of the mess they've made of the world that we're forced to live in. A world that we are forced to live in, messed up by the thems out there, and a world that we long to be out of. The great apostle Paul said of this conflicting desire, on the one hand, I have ministry to take care of here. On the other hand, I long to depart. He said... I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. We live, for now though, in a world that displays the effects of its rejection of God. And we live as exiles in a land that's increasingly devastated by our attempted coup of God. Most people are not connected to God. And as a result, they fend for themselves in trying to figure out life and truth and morality. And that's why the late Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer said that when man is separated from God, when the physical is separated from the spiritual, that separation he called the line of despair. It creates a line, a kind of ceiling above us that we cannot penetrate even if we wanted to. 
And it results in us being closed off from truth and meaning and morality and therefore creates the mess, the despair. And it's into that situation that we have been placed as Christians. Called out of the world and to God. And called to live in the world as strangers in a foreign land. And that's why this letter of 1 Peter was written. And that's why I've titled this series, Living Right in a World That Has Gone Wrong. That's what Christians have been called to do. Live right despite the fact that the world has gone wrong. And to that we have been called. Now, that may seem like an impossible task. But that's why Peter put pen to parchment. That's why he wrote it, to encourage people like us who share the same calling that the original readers did so that, so that we understand that we can indeed live right in a world gone wrong. And that's because of what I say in the outline that was inserted in your program. If you'll take a look at that, you have an outline there. And this letter was written to these elect exiles to encourage them that indeed you can live right in a world gone wrong and by extension it encourages us that we can live right in a world gone wrong and here's why because first of all I say in that outline first Peter is about people and it's not just about people let's make very clear that it is about very ordinary people first Peter Peter is about people who are ordinary folk like you and me. In fact, that begins, as I say in the outline there, with the one who wrote it, Peter himself. Peter was called by Jesus to be an apostle. And he was just an ordinary fisherman. We're told when he was called in Matthew chapter 4. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. So this guy Peter, who, verse number 1 of 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now we'll talk briefly about what that means in just a bit. But for now understand that this one who became an apostle of Jesus started out as just an ordinary guy involved in an ordinary occupation. He was a, a fisherman. And he was not a guy that was taught formally in the educational academy. In fact, the Bible says this in Acts chapter 4. The religious leaders saw that Peter and John were unschooled, ordinary men. So just a common guy, a fisherman, an ordinary guy without any particular formal education, and a humble man, though, aware of his own sinfulness. The Bible says that Jesus performed a miracle for Peter and others who were fishing. He said, cast your net on another side of the boat. And the, you remember, the net was just filled to overflowing with fish. And when Peter saw it, Luke chapter 5 tells us, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Peter is writing this letter to tell exiles, elect exiles, that you can live right in a world gone wrong. And the Peter who writes that is the Peter who understands his own frailty and his own weakness, that he is a sinful man. And do you remember some of the episodes in the life of Peter recorded in the Gospels? 
You know, Jesus calls out to him at night on the, on the water, and Peter gets out of the boat to walk toward Jesus. You all remember that. And the Bible tells us in Matthew 14 that he got out of the boat, he walked on the water, and he came toward Jesus. Now, before you judge Peter too harshly, how many of you are getting out of that boat? He walked on the water, he came toward Jesus, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And so he sank in the water for lack of faith. He's a regular guy, like us. He usually spoke too soon, and he often spoke foolishly. He said of himself, even though he had this humility that I'm sinful, you know, in an impulsive moment, he says to Jesus, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. But you remember Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me. And so we're going to see in a bit, Peter did deny him three times. Jesus began to make known to Peter and his other first followers that Jesus had come for a particular mission that was going to take him to Jerusalem and where he was going to give his life for his people. And when Peter heard this, Peter protested to to Jesus in Matthew 16. He took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke Jesus, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You may remember Jesus had to rebuke Peter, and he said, get behind me, Satan, in fact. Because anything that gets in the way of my mission to go to Jerusalem to die for my people is nothing other than satanic. And Peter was was weak in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before Jesus died. He went off to pray. He left his first followers to pray. But when he came back, the Bible says, Jesus said to Peter, Are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? And he was impulsive, as we've already seen, but we really see this impulsiveness in the garden when they come to arrest Jesus, you all recall? And Peter, who had a sword, the Bible says, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And Jesus again had to restrain Peter and to rebuke him. And he was cowardly. He could be cowardly and duplicitous. In fact, Jesus had predicted, you're going to deny me, Peter. And in fact, of course, Jesus' prediction was fulfilled in the life of Peter. John chapter 18 tells us, one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, (laughs) challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? But notice, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Jesus had said, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows, and this was the third time. And so this is a letter now written to exiles in a foreign land to live right in a world that's gone wrong. And the one who writes it, Peter himself, ought to give encouragement, yes, to them, but to you and me as well, because he was a regular guy with all the weaknesses and all the frailties and all the sin that he battled, just like you and me. And then there are the readers. And that ought to encourage you and me as well. First Peter is about people, and it's about ordinary people. Ordinary people like Peter, and ordinary people like those to whom Peter wrote. Verse 1 of chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout... And then it gives these five locations, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, 
Asia, and Bithynia. Now, when you read people's names in the Bible, when you read particular locations in the Bible, one of the things you ought to do is immediately say to yourself, this is stuff that really happened to real people in real places. Because the reason geographic locations are mentioned is because it's real people living in real places. Contrary to what a lot of people think about the Bible, it is not fairy tales. It is a book written to and about real people living real life in real places. And we are going to see some of the difficulties that they were encountering. We'll see some of that today, and then we'll see it throughout our weeks together as we go through First Peter. But these were readers who lived in real places at a real point in time, and they faced real problems like you and me. So it's about people. It's about ordinary people. And I say we see that in the writer and we see that in the readers, but in your outline I also say we see that in, we see that in the Savior as well. You see, because as God devised now this plan (laughs) to reconnect the two realms of the spirit and the physical world that have been disconnected by sin, eternity stepped into time so that they could be fully reconnected. And God became a real man, a real live man who walked the earth who experienced trial, who experienced weakness. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 that he was tried in all points like we are with the exception that he was without sin. So we have a common man in Jesus. He became a real man facing common problems. But Jesus is also an uncommon man. And because he was God and man, he faced some very uncommon problems as well. And we're going to see what those are in the second part of the outline. But for now, I want you to see that First Peter is about people, and it's about ordinary people like Peter and the readers, and Jesus was a man himself. And Jesus is the key player in their ability and our ability to live right in a world gone wrong. So it's about ordinary people, but I say in your outline as well, it's about extraordinary people also. Because these ordinary people, like you and me, are called by God and used by God to be involved in and to do extraordinary things. They're ordinary people that God empowers to do extraordinary things. And that's true of Peter the writer. Peter was all of the common things that we saw just a bit ago, but Peter, verse 1 of chapter 1, is also an apostle. Now that word, apostle, in your New Testament is a word that means one who is sent. And sometimes it is used just in a general sense of anybody that is sent on a mission to do something. But it's used in your New Testament as well in a very technical sense, and this is the technical sense of those few, few in number, in fact exact in number, who are called apostles. They were originally called the twelve. Judas betrayed Jesus. Acts chapter 1, Judas is replaced by Matthias. So for a period of time they were called the eleven, then they were called the twelve again. Now listen, if you're in a group that people just know as the eleven or the twelve, you're in an exclusive group. 
And Peter was part of that exclusive group because God had singled him out now, not because of Peter, but only because of God's electing choice to use Peter to do extraordinary things. We saw Peter was just an ordinary guy, but God chose him to be one of his apostles. And we see the extraordinary things that this ordinary guy Peter did. Back in Matthew 16, remember Peter had protested to Jesus, you'll never go to Jerusalem. This will never happen to you. But it was Peter who said to Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And it was Peter who was the first one to go to the tomb when Jesus had been raised and there was an empty tomb. Peter, the Bible says in Luke chapter 24, ran to the tomb. Peter, who was cowardly, by the way, right? Now Peter's Peter's running to the tomb. And he became this cowardly Peter before, now becomes a leader in the church. Acts chapter 1 says this, those who were present in the upper room after Jesus now had resurrected and ascended back to heaven. And now they're waiting for the power that Jesus promised would come upon them to begin his mission in his world. They're waiting in the upper room. And who's present there? First in the list is Peter. And first on purpose, because Peter has become a leader in the early church. Peter preached the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 and verse 14 says, Peter stood up with the, you all see the number there? (laughs) Peter stood up, raised his voice, and he addressed the crowd. So Peter became this extraordinary guy and this extraordinary leader, but he was just really an ordinary sinful guy, a fisherman, really an uneducated guy. But because God chose to use him, God empowered him to do what God gave him to do. Now let me just say quickly, although Peter became an extraordinary servant of Jesus, he was not a pope. And I know that some of you have been taught that Peter was the first pope. But let me just say very kindly and very directly, he was not. Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2 tells us that one of the other apostles, Paul, had to confront Peter to his face, withstand him to his face, because Peter was to be blamed for something I won't bore you with, but something he had done. Paul withstood Peter. So here you would have this very weird thing of Paul withstanding the first pope to his face if he was really the pope, but he wasn't, okay? But he did extraordinary things even though he was an ordinary guy. And the readers now, and the readers now, are called to do extraordinary things as well. Because in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter chapter 1, what is said of these first readers is true of you and me. If we have come to God through Jesus Christ, we are elect. We are exiles. Verse 2 says, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, with regard to this issue of foreknowledge and its relationship to God having chosen, God having elected, I explained that in a message last month on March the 17th when we looked at the gospel and all of its facets and we looked at calling and regeneration. And if you don't remember that, if you weren't here for that, 
All of our messages are online, so I'm not going to re-explain that now. But for now, just understand that foreknowledge means more than just knowing beforehand. That God's foreknowledge in the Bible is God actually choosing, God predetermining His plan and what He is going to carry out. And that's why verse 2 says we have been chosen according to the plan, the pre-plan, the foreplanning of God, the Father. And through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So, just like those first readers and just like Peter, the Spirit had called them and has called us out of the world into God. And that word sanctified, you all know, means set apart, as we saw just a couple of weeks ago in our series on the gospel. And very often in the Bible, it refers to the progressive setting apart of us so that we become more and more like Jesus. Here it's referring to the initial setting apart by the Spirit when we were called out of the world unto God. Those whom God has chosen and have now been made exiles, they are those whom God foreknew and the Spirit called out, set apart for God's purposes. And I tell you all of that to say everything that's said there about them is true of us. And so everything that is said in these five chapters of First Peter about how to live right in a world gone wrong is for us. And then I mention as extraordinary. These readers, we are extraordinary in the sense that we have been chosen and that we have been sanctified and called to carry out God's work. And then, of course, the Savior. Yes, a real man. Yes, fully human. But the Savior is the unique God-man, and He is extraordinary in that sense. So Jesus had all of the qualities of man... Humanity. He had all the qualities of God and those fused in one unique person that we call the God-man. And so First Peter is about people. And we're going to see in these five chapters the central person is this unique person, the Lord Jesus, who brings the two realms together, the upper story and the lower story, the spiritual and the physical. Secondly, in your outline, First Peter is about people, but it's also about problems. And before we get into that, one of the problems I'm having is I'm warm. Is anyone else warm? You're not, none of you guys are warm. Too bad, I'm warm. And so, yeah, thank you. So they're going to turn the, uh, you know what it is, we got the hot lights. Do we always have the hot lights on here? Do we always have those on? The spotlights? Oh, we do? All right. Well, anyway. So if that blows your uh, pages away or blows your hair or any of that, my apologies up front but I'll feel better. Thank you. First Peter is about people. It's also about problems, and it is about, I say in the outline, just like ordinary people, it's about ordinary problems. When we get to chapters 2 and 3, for instance, we are going to read about the ordinary everyday problems that these first readers of Peter's letter had with things like being good citizens in, under a government that is not following God. We're going to see that they had difficulties being good employees under harsh employers. We're going to see that they had difficulty being, playing their roles of husbands and of, and of wives. These are ordinary problems that they had and that we all face as well. And the Bible is replete with instructions about ordinary problems that people face living in a fallen world. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says this. 
that no temptation, and that word temptation, you see, is the same word in your New Testament in Greek as trial or being tried. You could read that no temptation or trial has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or tried beyond what you can bear, but when tempted or tried, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Common stuff happening to them, common stuff happening to us, and God gives the promise that it's common to man, and I will provide a way of escape, and we will see those ways of escape in the letter of First Peter. So it's about problems, it's about ordinary problems, like employment, like being a good citizen, like being a husband, like being a wife, but it is also in your outline about extraordinary problems. They're extraordinary problems because they are exiles. They are people living as strangers in a foreign land. They are called to do what is really impossible in their own strength. So the problems go beyond the ordinary. Even their parenting problems, they have all the common stuff that goes with that, but it goes beyond that because God has called Christian parents to be more than what other parents are. It's not just to keep my kids out of jail, get them a good job, send them to a good school. God has more for us to do than that. And so we have, yes, the ordinary problems, but we face extraordinary problems because of our calling as exiles in a foreign land. And these folks to whom they were, Peter was writing were facing particular extraordinary problems. Because chapter 5 and verse 13, Peter says, I'm writing to you from, and he says there, I'm writing to you from, he says, Babylon. Well, what is that? Now, I don't have time and I will not bore you with this fact. But when he says Babylon, he is using that to refer to Rome. Peter is writing this letter to these people in those five geographic locations that are now in modern-day Turkey. He is writing to them, but he is writing from Rome. Now, why does that, why does that matter? Well, here's why it matters. I'd like to take just a few minutes to describe for you the situation in Rome. Most commentators who try to date Peter, 1st Peter, and when it was written, have it right around 64 AD. Either early 64 AD or late 64 AD. Most have it in 64 AD and everybody has it thereabouts. And here's why that's important and the fact that Peter is writing from Rome because on July 19, of 64 AD, a, in, an infamous event in history occurred. The Roman Emperor Nero set fire to the city of Rome. And Peter is writing from Rome. And Nero torched the city. And I want to read you what one commentator says in his description of what, of what happened. Rome was a city of narrow streets. It had dense population. Those narrow streets had wooden fences that lined each side of those narrow streets that, uh, behind which were housed uh, tenements where people lived. And once the fire hit Rome, it consumed the city very quickly. The fire could leap across those narrow streets and consume those wooden fences and buildings like kindling. The first three days and nights, the fire spread rapidly. 
It was somewhat checked, but not totally put out. And then it broke out again, but even worse. Before it was done, it had consumed most of the homes and of most of the people. The Roman people believed that their emperor Nero was, by all definitions, some kind of a maniac and had himself set the city on fire. They believed he did it because he had an incredible lust for building. For him, he wanted to build more and more things. In order for him to build more and more things, he destroyed stuff so that he could, so that he could build. History tells us he had a front row seat in the Tower of Messinus, and he watched the raging inferno consume the city of Rome. Historians say that Nero was somewhat charmed by the flames. In fact, he considered them quite lovely. People who tried to put out the flames were eventually hindered, and where the fire was stopped, a new fire was purposely started. The people were totally devastated. And with that fire and the burning of their city, in a sense, their culture was destroyed as well. The Temple of Luna, the Ara Maxima, the Great Altar, the Temple of Jupiter Stator, the Shrine of Vesta, all the religious elements of their life were destroyed. Their very household gods were even burned up. And so it was not just an economic and a social loss, but it was a religious loss as well, as they were religiously confused, as they realized their own deities had been unable to stop this calamity and, in fact, had become victims of it. Many of the people had become homeless. And so the people were bitter and resentful about what had happened. And Nero developed a scapegoat. And guess who the scapegoat was? It was this group known as Christians. Nero blamed Christians for the burning of Rome. And Christians were already in a difficult spot. They were already hated. They were already slandered. They were hated and slandered because they were associated with Jews. And there was anti-Semitism in Rome and in the empire. Christians were seen as those who would not fully cooperate with the government because they had their own king, Jesus, and they were looking forward to a new government in the future. The Lord's table, communion, was closed to unbelievers, to, to pagans. You remember that archaeologists have discovered in the catacombs where Christians would meet and they would share communion there, but it was only for Christians. It was not for the pagans. But they heard that in these catacombs that these Christians were eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking His blood. And so there was the charge, the slander of cannibalism. They heard about the love feasts that the early Christians engaged in. And at those love feasts, they would share a holy kiss with one another, as you see mentioned in the New Testament. But that became a rumor about them having unbridled orgies, including homosexuality. Many wives of prominent Roman officials became Christian. And thus, Christians were resented because these women were seen as acting independently of their husband in unsubmissive ways. And that's why chapter 3 of 1 Peter is going to address this issue of submission of wives to, to husbands. And Christians would talk about a day that was coming in the future. Their home's not here. We're exiles. Peter addresses them as such. And there's going to be a day when there is going to be a new world and this old world is going to be consumed in what? In flames. In fact, Peter talks about that in his second letter. And so what a fitting thing for Nero to do, to burn the city 
and to blame those who are looking forward to a new city when the old one is consumed by flames. I want you to just look at a few passages where Peter alludes to the suffering and the difficulty now that his first readers are undergoing because this persecution has broken out and it is now spreading in other parts of the empire, including where they are located in Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey. Chapter 1 and verse 6. Chapter 1 and verse 6. In this you gracefully rejoice, though now for a little while you, have may, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Chapter 3 and verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. And then chapter 4 and verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. So you see these allusions throughout the letter that Peter wrote to these early Christians. Allusions to the difficult situation that they are in. And I've said that these are ordinary people, that God has called to do extraordinary things, to try to tell you that we are like them. But then you hear about these circumstances and you go, wow, our circumstances are not like that. Let me just say this. I've already said that the letter addresses common issues of things like parenting and how to be a good citizen and how to be an employee and all of that. So those all apply to us. And it is definitely true, thanks be to God, that at this point in time in 2013 in America, we do not suffer the kind of persecution that those first Christians did. But friends, it can change. I don't know how it will change. I make no particular prediction about that. I will say that whether in my lifetime or sometime in the next generation, things like preaching against homosexuality could very easily become hate crimes in our country. So do not think that it can't happen here. It has happened throughout history. Christians have been despised because they are exiles in a foreign land. But further, our brothers and sisters in other parts of God's world are suffering this very way right now. So we need to know what that is like. We need to know what it was like and what it is like so that we can unite our hearts and our efforts and our prayers with and for them. And so it's about ordinary problems, but it's also about extraordinary problems. And you, if you are going to live for Jesus Christ, even if you are not physically persecuted, you will face extraordinary problems, often from family, sometimes from co-workers, those who resent the stand that you take. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul wrote to his protege Timothy, and he said, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so, how does this all apply to us as we conclude? We are elect exiles if we've come to Jesus in the United States of America. 
We have, according to verse 2, been set apart, sanctified by the Spirit from the world. And thus we are in the same situation as those to whom Peter wrote. And Peter goes on to tell them that you are called now to obey, verse number 2. We are called to obey and we are empowered to obey just as were they. And we are going to see how we are empowered to obey and precisely what it is that we are to obey in the weeks and next few months together. I hope you will be here with us. We're going to bow and pray. But all of this elect exile stuff, all of this sanctifying stuff, all of that is only for those who have been called out of the world and to God through Jesus. And that's why the end of verse number 2 says all of this is the case because of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. When it refers to the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, it's an allusion back to the sprinkling of the blood on, on the mercy seat. And Jesus, the Bible tells us in John chapter 1 and verse 14, is the place where God and man are tabernacled in one unique person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now He has become our mercy seat. And by His blood, He satisfies the anger of God toward our sin. And God, through now the blood of Jesus, reconnects us to Himself. We come to God through Jesus. How do you do that? You do that believing who Jesus is and what Jesus did. God came as man to do for you what you could not do for yourself. And so you realize that you have sinned against God. You recognize that Jesus, with His blood, paid the price for your sin on the cross. Repent of your sin. I want to follow you, Lord Jesus, my God, with my life. Go your way rather than my way. You receive Jesus into your life by asking Him. So we have a sample prayer. It's not a magic formula. You pray from your heart to God in your own words, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need the forgiveness that only comes through the blood of Jesus. I need to be connected, related to you. I ask you to forgive me and to save me. And he promises he will do that very thing in the moment that you ask. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for your word that is as relevant today as the moment it was written. We thank you for your servant Peter who penned these words, and we thank you for preserving them for us. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God of history and that you act within history. That the things we read about in Scripture actually happened at real places at real times to real people just like us. Lord, we ask for your aid over these next weeks together as we look at the instruction that your servant has left for us so that we can apply to ourselves those instructions, obey what is said therein, and thereby live in a way that pleases you and draws people to a different way of life, that the pagans see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. I pray that some are coming to you right now in salvation that your spirit is sanctifying, setting apart for the very first time now some who came into this room without a relationship with you, without being connected to you. We thank you for this, and we will give you the glory for all you accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen.